Well, good morning again. In the year 1917, the then leader of the Democratic Socialist Party came to power in Russia. His name Vladimir Lenin. He had written in 1905 that anybody who belonged to the Democratic Socialist Party by default was an atheist. And so he came to power in 1917 as the dictator of what became the Soviet Union and now is Russia today. One of the first acts that he undertook was to destroy the family, and in particular, to destroy marriage. And so as he came into power, he took three actions legally that will sound oddly familiar to where we are today. The first was he changed their law to allow for civil marriages. Before that time, they had to be sanctioned by the church and be married under God. The second thing he did was make abortion legal and actually free if they would just do it in a hospital. And the third thing he did was to institute no-fault divorce. All you had to do was to notify the state, and they sent a postcard to your spouse letting you know that the divorce had happened. And, of course, it wreaked havoc in the society that they had, and they rapidly, even under communist rule, started to roll those things back when it started to disintegrate. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2, and here we enter upon what I think is probably one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus, right? I mean, I, I heard it when I was in business years ago by people who never set foot in church. It became a bit of a saying of turning water into wine. They, they really didn't know much about the miracle itself, but it's a very well-known thing, turn water into wine. And as we turn to that text, let's not lose sight of where that miracle actually occurred. It's not by chance, it's not an accident that this happened here, it was the plan of God that the very first miracle that Jesus performs is actually at a celebration of the covenantal union between one man and one woman in marriage, because marriage was created by God for human flourishing, for the good of his creation, and marriage is God's perfect order for humanity should never be regarded lightly. It shouldn't be looked at with disrespect. We know that we live in an age of great moral rebellion where it does come under attack because when you have great moral rebellion against God, you have an all-out mutiny against those things that God has created as our creator, all of the structures that he instituted for our good and his glory. A key target of the revolt has been marriage, marriage and the family. Looking out at you and thinking of your youth. I know that many of you would have lived through the free love movement of the 1960s that then spawned the no-fault divorce laws in our nation in that decade. You fast forward to modern times and you see the continued work to destroy marriage by the LBGTQ movement, by the Freedom of Marriage Act, which is just the destruction of Marriage Act. And finally, you see repeatedly calls to do away with the institution of marriage altogether. It's an antiquated thing. Just a week and a half ago on Valentine's Day or right around Valentine's Day, the Washington Post published an article with the main point being, and I quote, marriage is not a cure-all for our society. It is typically only a temporary status of adulthood. That's just a temporary thing you do. And clearly it said, our culture needs to move beyond its fixation with marriage. See, those who hate God hate what God created for the good of humanity. And the covenant of marriage was part of God's very good 
creation. Having created man and woman, we know what he said in Genesis 1.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus would go on to elaborate on that and say, therefore, what God has joined together, man shall not tear apart. And the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, then says to us, hey, look, God gave us this because it is a picture of how Christ relates to his church. It was always part of God's creation. So is marriage important to God? Is family important to God? It is so important that the very first image we receive of the public ministry of Jesus occurs at a wedding. At a wedding. It's not an accident. Let's read our text. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we turn to this miracle that our familiarity with it won't cloud uh, the wonderful truths that you reveal to us in your word, that your spirit would open our hearts and open our eyes and would draw us ever near to our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, when the Apostle John records the miracles of Jesus, he actually uses a particular word. You see it there in verse 11. He calls them signs. And a sign, we know, is something that identifies its object. It provides us with information about something. They often give direction, and they always evoke a response, right? Be cautious. There's a corner coming up, whatever that response is. And here we encounter, in this text, the first sign that Jesus did. Now, every sign in John, and there are only seven of them that he records for us, every sign points then to something about Jesus, and it is meant to inform us about him, and it is meant to generate a response in us to these signs. We have to always go back and remember, why did John write about these seven signs, these seven miracles? Well, he tells us in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs, these seven signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we are to look at these signs and see that the Christ, the very Son of God, is in fact this God-man, Jesus Christ. And that we follow him and believe in him and trust in him, we can have life in his name, meaning all of him, what he has done, who he is, how he has saved us. 
And so as we turn to our text, you'll see it in your outlines. We're going to cover it under three headings this morning. And I will say that these are kind of overarching headings. Uh, the first one really spans the whole text. The second one really carries us through the story itself. And then abundant grace, which kind of wraps it all up in terms of how to think about applying it. You see, many who study the Gospel of John do it in a scholarly way, and they divide it into two parts. Chapters 2 through 12 are often referred to as the book of signs, and the rest of it is often referred to as the book of glory. But within the division of the signs, chapters 2 through 4 actually emphasize a truth, uh, the truth that in Christ a new creation has dawned. In his coming, a new creation has dawned. You see it in the first sign where the old ceremonial purifications of the law are replaced by the wine of the kingdom of God. Then you see it coming up next that the old temple is replaced by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Then by John chapter 3, you get an exposition of the new birth, him making you new with the gift of the Spirit. You get a comparison of the water from Jacob's well and the living water that comes from Christ. And then finally, you see a, a, a description of worship in Jerusalem running to the temple versus worship in spirit and truth that we do in Christ. And all of this together points to that truth that Paul records so simply in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see this at the start. Our text begins with a specific notation of time. It tells us on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Go back in your minds to how John began this gospel. In the prelude, with a reference back to the beginning, back to creation. The first three verses, John proclaims that the word was eternal. And that he was with God and he was God. He was the second person of the Trinity and that through him all things were created. Then in John 1.19, he begins this catalog of days. He moves to the first day. And it's a fascinating thing because we know the timing of creation itself. Because we're told by the only person who was actually there at creation, which was God. Genesis 1 and 2 catalog this for us, but Exodus 20, 11 gives us a summary statement. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, which continues. And that was not a rest because he was tired. It wasn't a rest of exhaustion. It was a rest of completion as his creation moved forward. Genesis tells us God saw everything that he made, and he declared that it was very good. We know the rest of the story. Something dreadful happened. Sin entered into his very good creation through the sin of Adam. It separated us from God. It exposed us to hardships, to suffering, and ultimately to death. And from that point onward, humankind and all creation, right? We're told in Romans 8, creation groans under the weight of sin. Humankind and all creation awaited the day when we would once again enter God's rest. And we would do that through the Messiah who would come. Then we see all throughout Scripture this unraveling. Types and shadows point forward as God reveals his redemptive plan. The Mosaic law was given. The people of Israel entered the promised land, which was supposed to be rest, but they could not obey and got kicked out. Rest remained far off. People awaited the Christ. The law pointed only to our sin, our shortcoming, our need of a Savior. 
And then John continues. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And with that, he ushered us into a new creation, the promised rest to come. Hebrews 4 says the promise of entering God's rest still stands for everyone who will hear the gospel. It says we who have believed in Christ enter that rest, enter that newness of life. Let's just take a quick look so that we get our days straight here. In John 1.19 to 2.1, you see, and you only see it here, a very careful recording of time, Right? On day one, and, and sorry, with, with that careful recording of time, hopefully this is making sense, it actually gives us an allusion to creation and the new creation in Christ. It, it's pointing us forward to that rest from works, that rest that we get in life through the grace of Jesus Christ. So in John 1.19, we actually get the first day with the religious leaders. They come and they question John. Why'd they question him? Because he was out in the wilderness preaching to people they need to repent of sin, they need to look forward to the Christ, they need to be baptized as a symbol of what that work was doing internally. And then on the second day, John sees Jesus and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The third day, two disciples, Andrew and John, follow Jesus and spend time with him. They stay with him. On the fourth day, Andrew goes out and shares the good news with Simon Peter. On the fifth day, God call, Jesus calls Philip. Philip evangelizes Nathaniel. They follow Jesus. And on the sixth day, they travel to Cana. And at this point, we get the first sign that something has changed as we enter into the seventh day, the day of rest. John 1.17 says, The law was given through Moses, Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And this first sign presents the reality that that newness has come. The water of Judaism has been transformed into the sweet wine of Christianity. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. And it is no wonder that it all happens on the seventh day and at a wedding feast. Because not only is marriage a covenant that is intrinsic to creation as we talked about, but it's but the marriage feast is used as imagery throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament and Old. You see it when Jesus gives parables. He talks about the wedding feast, picturing the kingdom of God. Jesus uses imagery of the bride and the bridegroom to explain the relationship of his disciples to him. Right, we see later that Christ is the bridegroom to his bride, the church, and in him is found the rest which God has promised which Jesus guaranteed when he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for my souls or for your souls. The new creation, the dawning of it is brought forward when Christ arrives. It is a new creation that actually begins with his first advent, with his first coming, but it is not complete. It is furthered even today by the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in all of us who follow Jesus and it will be consummated and perfect and finalized and complete when Christ returns again. And all of this begins on the seventh day of his ministry. Just kind of symbolically looking at a Sabbath rest in Christ. What we're told to strive to enter in Hebrews. Strive to enter that rest, it says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that plagued all of those who refused to follow Jesus and instead get tired constantly pursuing this fruitless life of works that cannot save you. 
And so that brings us as an overview uh, to the second point. This first great and memorable command really is how it ends. But it begins by telling us the mother of Jesus was there. She was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. In verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, John never actually mentions the name of Mary each time he brings her up. The focus is always on Jesus. The focus is always on Jesus. She is only referred to as his mother. When you look at this particular event, it's possible, many speculate, that who was being married might have been a relative, a distant relative. Uh, Cana is only seven miles or so from Nazareth where Jesus was raised. But Mary is there and is in the middle of things, almost making it seem that she has something to do with the catering or the service of this wedding because there's a difference in how Jesus and his disciples are introduced. Mary was there. Jesus and his disciples were invited. They were guests. That's sort of a side note, but the more important thing for us to consider when we look at this miracle is the underlying reason for the sign. Because we talk about the water to the wine, but Jesus never performed miracles just to wow a crowd. Right? He didn't simply do miracles just to show that he was indeed God, the Son, in the flesh. You never see him jumping off rooftops and flying or making things disappear and reappear like a magician might do. All of Jesus' miracles, all of them, meet real needs that people had. Every one of them. He healed the blind so they could see. He opened deaf ears so people could hear. He fed hungry people when they had no food. And the very same thing is actually here in this text, in this sign that we encounter now. Because of our modern way of doing weddings, we kind of miss that. But this was a very real need. And the sign not only tells us something about Jesus' divinity, it demonstrates his compassion and his abundant grace for his people. But we can understand this better if you consider what a wedding feast or ceremony actually looked like in first century Israel. It would go like this. On a Wednesday, weddings were always on Wednesdays. On a Wednesday... Uh, the, the groom, with a huge procession of his family and followers, would make their way to the bride's house. They would usually do this at night so that there was a brilliant line of torches marching through to the, to the bride's house. He would meet the bride at her house, and they would have speeches and all of the congratulatory things, and then they would all march back to the groom's house. And that was where the wedding feast would actually begin. And it was nothing like modern wedding receptions, which often sort of turn into just dance and a party and then people go home. This was a feast that was long. They lasted up to seven days. So this was a big production. Within this, the groom and his family were financially responsible for all of it, for the entire uh, process. And their honor, their honor was tied up in how this went. But that is something hard us to grasp. They had a shame culture. Eastern countries often do still today. Your honor was, was to be prized, and it could damage to that honor, could damage you forever. We live in a day where, I mean, every politician stands and lies, gets caught in their lie, and just keeps lying, and nobody cares. Like, we don't have a shame culture. I wish we did. But that was part of the problem. Everybody's looking to the groom. 
but it actually gets worse, and there's historical writings about this. To run out of food or to run out of wine would not only bring this lasting shame upon this new family, it would bring with it lawsuits. People actually brought lawsuits against the groom for failing to provide the right type of things at a wedding ceremony. Oddly enough, the lawsuits were often brought by the bride's own family. So what you have here is that this is a very serious issue for these people. This is not just like, hey, they don't have wine for their party. This is a serious issue, and it helps us understand what comes next because it's not just a fun miracle that Jesus does that we all look back on. It was a compassionate and very gracious act that met the real needs of this very young family getting a start in life who faced very certain social and financial catastrophe right out of the gate. So the wine ran out, and Mary just stated the fact to Jesus. She said, they have no wine. Why? Why go to Jesus? Why do you think Mary went to Jesus? It it was certainly, she's implying, do something to fix it. But why do you think Mary went to Jesus? I'll tell you, it's not because she expected a miracle. She didn't expect him to make wine rain down from the sky or to go grab buckets of water and turn them into wine. Jesus had never done a miracle before. This is the first of his signs. So Mary would have no expectation that he would just make wine magically appear somewhere. She takes this problem to him. Now, one reason why she might do this is, we can't know this with 100% certainty, but virtually everyone agrees who comments on this text uh, that Mary was probably a widow by this time. The very last time you see Joseph mentioned was in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was just 12 years old and you never see him mentioned again. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is known not just as the carpenter's son, which you see people routinely referred to as the son of somebody. He's referred to as the carpenter, the son of Mary. He seems to have risen in that household, to have taken over. If that were the case, if Mary was a widow, then like any widow of the time, maybe like many widows today, she would have relied very heavily on her eldest son as the leader of the family. He would be the one that she would go to to address issues, to fix a problem. So she certainly had an expectation that you need to go do something to fix this problem. But we do also remember at the same time, Mary did know who Jesus was. She may not have fully understood it. Who knows? That sort of unraveled through the Gospels. But she did know because 30 years before this had happened, she still remembered that day when the angel Gabriel appeared to her And spoke to her while she was simply betrothed to Joseph, still a virgin girl. And he said in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of God and scripture says she treasured these things in her heart she treasured the sayings and the prophecies of the shepherds who came to her and Simeon in the temple and Anna in the temple and 30 years have gone by and she's yet to see what is done she must be wondering as she reflects on these promises 
Those of you who are mothers must also think she must have had firsthand knowledge that something's different. Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. He's got brothers and sisters, the natural offspring of Mary and Joseph after he's born, and they're different. I, I don't care how good they were. The best of kids is selfish, a sinner, and yet this one. So she does know something is different. She knew he was trustworthy. Do we know he's trustworthy? She knew he was reliable. Do we know he's reliable? I think we do. But since he had still never done a miracle, we shouldn't assume when we read Mary going to him that she had an expectation that he would do one now. She just went to her oldest son to fix the problem. Just fix the problem. Do whatever it took. Jesus, we have a pending disaster. You know what's going to happen. They're out of wine. Go get some. Do something. Jesus responds to her in a unique way in verse 4. He looks to her and he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? You may see in your translation, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. This is not the response any mother would want. I was at dinner with my parents last night. My mom asked for something, and I actually said it to her. She just laughed, so it didn't get, I still had to get up and get what she wanted me to get her. But I tried it. Woman, what does this have to do with us? It's not the response a mother wants when she brings the problem. Jesus responds in a very abrupt manner here. It's formal. It's not rude. We shouldn't read it that way. It's not rude what he says, but it is very uncommon way to address one's mother, even in that time. Jesus is very far from common, though, isn't he? He's truly God and truly man, and he's entering into his public ministry, and his eyes are focused solely on fulfilling the will of his Father, which would culminate on the cross to bring salvation to all people who believe in him. That phrase, woman, what does this have to do with me? And again, I know uh, many of you use different translations. That's the ESV. Uh, they're all good, but it's translated a little bit different each place because it's a hard one to translate. It's a, it's a saying. It's an idiom for that time. And it doesn't translate well into English because we don't use the same phrase. But it was always indicating a distance between two parties. It's sort of, what do you and I have in common at all in relation to what's going on? That's kind of the the meaning behind that phrase. Jesus is here indicating to her as his ministry begins that the mother-son relationship has changed forever. It has changed forever. And far from being rude, this was a loving act of Jesus. To quote one commentator, it was very kind of him to emphasize by the use of these words that Mary must no longer think of him as being merely her son. Mary must begin to look upon Jesus as Lord. As Lord. Everywhere in the Gospels, where Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, he makes clear that there is a distance now between them, that she is the same as every other person created. That's not to say that Mary is not special, that she was not blessed by God. She was, that she's not a model for us to look to. She is, but she's saved in the same way. There's nothing in this text some use this text wrongly. There's nothing in this text or any other text of Scripture that indicates that Mary motivates Jesus in a particular way or controls Jesus' ministry in any diff way that's different than anybody else. And certainly those who pray to Mary hoping for this are in grave error. She is not God. She cannot hear prayers. She is not omniscient. She's just like you and I. 
She is saved like everyone else by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she has no more influence on Jesus than you or me or any of the saints recorded in the scriptures who come to Jesus asking to be healed or heal my daughter or let me see. And Jesus responds to them. She's no more influential than that. Jesus makes this clear time and again. For example, I'll give you two examples. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my mother, my sister, my, bro- or my, sister, my brother, my sister, my mother. In Luke 8, very similar. His mother and brothers came to him. They couldn't reach him because of the crowd. They wanted in. They wanted to grab him. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Our family in Christ by faith. Family relationships, blood relationships would not grant special access or save Jesus' mother or Jesus' brothers and sisters. We're even told in John 7, 5 that his brothers didn't believe in him yet. And then, of course, later we know that they did, right? We see James writing in the New Testament, Jude writing in the New Testament. Just think about that. What a shame if Jesus had not made that point clear to his mother. Love always proclaims the gospel truth, even when it's very hard for someone to accept. A mother knows this would be hard to accept. She raised him. She watched him grow in wisdom and stature, favor with God and men. The point Jesus was making at the very outset of his ministry there at Cana, that relationship had changed. He still had a special love for her. We see that when he's hanging on the cross. He takes care of her in a different way than others. However, Mary, just like every other person in history from then to now, must come to Jesus in faith. She must repent and believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She has to submit to the Lord Jesus because he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. Now that phrase is not hard to deduce because we know the Gospels and it is used consistently throughout John to point only to one thing. It's used seven times in the Gospel of John. It always refers to his suffering and his death on the cross. It's easy for us because we've read it and we've read the other Gospels. So we might ask, why is this here? Well, if this was your first time reading the Gospel of John and you hadn't read anything else, it's there because it should uh, get you thinking and looking forward. Well, when is his hour going to come? What does this mean that his hour has not come? And you don't see it until you get to John chapter 12 when a certain event happens. And we talked about it when we talked about the disciple Andrew. When Andrew brings to him the Gentiles, at that point, after meeting with them, Jesus says the hour now has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And from that point forward, he marches toward the cross. So when Jesus says this to Mary, it shows there is a very big difference between how Mary is looking at the situation and how Jesus is looking at the situation. Mary wants there to be wine to avoid embarrassment, possible legal action, to set this family up, comforts in this life. Jesus, on the other hand, is focused on one purpose, the redemptive plan established before time began by his Father in the triune Godhead. And he knows, and he knows his scriptures, right? 
The prophets long ago characterized what the messianic age would look like. Jesus returns in his glorified state to reign and rule over the new heavens and the new earth. That is a time when wine would flow in abundance, right? It's giving us this picture of the richness of eternal life in Christ. Amos 9, for just one example. It says, Behold, the days are coming, speaking of the day of the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all hills shall flow with it. His glory, his final glory, is not now at this wedding. It is in the future. It's not at that moment. There's no way, I don't think, that Mary could have understood what Jesus meant by this right at this moment. His disciples who followed him for three years, taught by him every day, couldn't seem to get it through their heads. So it's unlikely she would understand. So how does she react? That's the important thing to see. Because she reacts with very humble submission and faith. Right? His mother just looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to ask you to do. He may do something. He may do nothing. He knows the problem. Just do whatever he tells you. She first approached Jesus as his mother. She was telling him the problem with the implication that he must fix it. She gets this mild rebuke from Jesus, a resetting of their relationship, and now she responds in the way that we must always respond, with faith. It's with faith. Her faith is honored in a special way. But we have to remember from this example that when we go to God, we can fall into this trap. Don't dictate what God must do in response to our problems and to our prayers, right? We call upon God. We present him the problem. We continue to pray. We continue to trust him. We continue to place our faith in him. And notably, we must be willing to obey him. Mary has no idea what Jesus might do. She just knows in her heart and trusts that he will do what's right, he will do what's good, and so she issues the command that we should all have burned into our hearts and minds. Do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. This brings us to our final heading, abundant grace. In verse six, we read there, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Stop here. Integral to the Jewish religion were ceremonial washings. Right? We know that. That's actually what John was doing out in the wilderness with baptism. It was a ceremonial washing. In Mark chapter 7, we get this little side note to explain to us what uh, the Jews did. It said Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. We tell our kids to do this because we're worried about dirt. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a ceremonial washing. Your hands are already clean. Uh, they held to the tradition of the elders when they come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And it goes on and on. You get to a wedding feast, and there is a lot of washing at the wedding feast, a lot of ceremonial washing. Water would be needed uh, to come around and wash every set of hands, both before eating and after eating. This constant washing is constantly reminding you, you are not clean before our righteous and holy God. You must wash yourself. They would routinely wash all the utensils in this ceremonial fashion. And that is why you have these six very large water pots there for the washing. So the servants get told to go fill them up. 
and they obey Jesus, and they fill them right to the top, it tells us. They leave no room for anything to be added. And verse 8 says, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. So the servants who had drawn the water knew. When Jesus told them to take some water out of the jars that are used for washing hands and utensils and ceremonial washings and go take it to your boss and have him drink it and test it out, that's not an ordinary request. That is how to get fired in 60 seconds or less kind of request, right? That's a bad joke. It's not, it's not going to go well for you. This would have gotten them fired immediately. Nobody would drink that water. It was not there to be drank. What do they do? They obey. They obey. It might not have made sense to them. You've got to be kidding me. Do you, Jesus, do you know what this water is for? Uh, let me explain to you, Jesus. Th- th- this water here is actually to clean those f- forks or whatever they used and, and the people's hands and their feet. We use this to come clean before God, not to drink. We don't drink this stuff. It might not have made sense to them but they follow the command of the Lord Jesus. Is that not a picture of Christian discipleship? Our our tendency in the world is to always think we know a better way, a better way to worship, a a better way to do things, a way to speed around things, a, a way to find our own solutions. What does Jesus say? He says, if you love me, the evidence of that is that you will obey me. And if you love me, you will obey my commands, is the verse. John records that the master didn't know where the water came from. I actually think that has a a great meaning in this text. We read that parenthetical, don't think much about it. He didn't know where the water came from, but the servants did. They knew it came from the purification jars. If he had known where it came from, not a chance he would have even taken a sip. Doesn't matter what that looks like. It looks like wine, but I know where it came from, right? He's not taken a sip of that water. And you have to imagine that as they stood back, like kind of doing the, you know, there's three of us there. Uh, you hand it to him. I'm not, dude, not me. Like, you're the one who drew it out. You take it to him, right? And they stand back and they watch this guy. What's he going to do? And they must have been surprised because he must have drank fully because it says, and the master of the feast called the bridegroom to him and said to him, everybody serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, right? Their taste buds now numbed. Then they give the poor wine. You. What are you thinking? You've saved the good wine until the very end. Oh, what a wonderful picture of what Jesus does for us. Jesus didn't just save the newlyweds. He set them up. He provided a gift, a gift that set them in a nice path, an abundant supply, 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine made by the creator, plenty left over. They could sell it. Is it? And in pointing to the superior quality of the wine provided by Jesus, this sign uh, leaves us with no other conclusion that everything that is tied to Jesus, right, to the new covenant bought by his blood, to the messianic age that Jesus introduced by his perfect life in substitutionary death, everything brought about by Jesus is superior to what was in existence before. It's new and it's better. And in fact, this manifested, it showed his glory. Verse 11 says, this is the first of his signs. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
wasn't yet time for the world to see the glory of Jesus Christ. But Mary, his mother, the servants, and the disciples were fully aware of what Jesus had done. We're stopping before verse 12, but you see his disciples and his relatives leave with him. Now John calls this a sign, and it was of utmost value to those who viewed it through the eyes of faith, trusting who Jesus is, because the disciples who witnessed this miracle, who had already spent time with Jesus, we saw that, who had already committed to follow him, it tells us they believed in him. That sign points to several things that we can take note of. First, it manifested Christ's glory in that it put on display the full deity of Jesus. He's the Lord of all creation. All things are made by him and through him and for him. And simply by an act of his will, water turned to wine. Second, his glory is displayed in his ministry, how he met the needs of the newlyweds. He saved them from lasting shame probably gave them great notoriety, as we read, because of the quality of what they're now serving. And he provided for their guests. He gave them more than they ever dreamed and more than they ever needed for this wedding feast. Jesus said in John 10.10 that unlike the world, unlike the devil out there who seeks only to kill and steal and destroy, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Philippians 4, 19 says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We have such a hard time distinguishing between wants and needs. We may want a lot of things. We need to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be drawn ever closer to him. And we have to bring him our worries, our cares, our needs, and trust that his will be done. And when we obey him, when we live for him, the spiritual blessings that are lavished upon us will be like the abundance of sweet wine that was provided at this wedding feast. Third, and not to be missed, this miracle speaks of a wonderful spiritual reality that just as Jesus transforms the water into wine, Jesus transforms our lives when we come to him. When we come to him. We'll see it more in John chapter 3, but we are born again. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are nourished by the word of God. From his fullness we receive grace upon grace. All who follow Jesus have been born again out of perishable seed that will go away, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God, First Peter tells us. And like the high quality wine, it tells us he makes us new. A royal priesthood, a holy, set apart people, a people for his own possession. Fourth, the gospel, <clears throat> fourth, you see here that God, who's the author of life, he brings us joy and life in the new covenant. Right in the new covenant that comes through Jesus Christ. There's no accident that the old water in the jars for purification, they could not bring joy in and of themselves to the wedding. They couldn't fulfill the people. He didn't just send out the jars of water. They were there for repeating washings to show our separation from God and uncleanness in the sight of God. They represented the law. And Galatians says, by works of law, no one will be justified. No one will be forgiven. Jesus ushers in the new covenant. And as Paul says in Romans, in Christ, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's something new here. This blessing. Jesus displayed his glory 
and transforming the dead water of sin and works into the sweet wine of salvation by grace through faith in him. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The law, purification, sacrifices, all that it entailed pointed forward to a redeemer. It could not bring joy. It could not bring fullness of life. Those things only come in Jesus. He did it all. He obeyed where we sin and rebel. He died so we could live. He rose from the grave as the first fruits of what we will become someday. And all who turn from sin and follow him will join him in heaven one day. The Bible closes by telling us of a great and final wedding feast when the church, the bride of Christ, will be united to her Lord forever and ever. Revelation 21, 2-3 as I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the blessed eternal future in which we hope. It's there for all who will trust and follow Jesus. This wonderful feast. Isaiah pointed forward and said, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the question for every man, woman, and child is whether they will be there. Whether they will be there. Have you heard the gospel and responded in repentance and faith? Bigger question for all of you is, will you share it? Will you pass the invitation on? Because hearing who Jesus is and what he has done to save us is the invitation. But you only reserve a seat at the table hosted by Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, our Creator, our Redeemer, by believing. By believing him and following him. And so that's what we'll close with. Believe him. Do whatever he tells you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know the truth. We find it hard to walk in the truth. There's so many things in life that come our way by your providence that challenge us to always come back and place our trust and our faith in Jesus. And to obey what you have told us, to not look for a better way. It is simple, Lord, but hard to do. We pray that you would continue to work in our hearts by your gift, the Holy Spirit, that he would continue to draw us nearer to Christ, convict us where we need to change in our beliefs, in our thoughts, in our actions, that we might experience that fullness of grace upon grace of living in Christ. Lord, help us never lose sight of this new creation ushered in that we get a glimpse of, that we hope one day when he returns. Give us the joy of knowing your promises never fail, that you are a God who cannot lie, and that one day we will indeed be at the great wedding feast. Lord, we long for that day. We pray, come Lord Jesus, as the Apostle John prayed. 
Lord, we pray that in the interim, you would use each and every one of us as a beacon of light to this world, first in our families and then to our community, that we might share the good news of Jesus, of salvation in him, of newness of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.